Today's topic is seizure and epilepsy. To many people, they are one and the same, but to a neurologist, they mean two different things. By the numbers, one in 10 people will have a seizure in their lifetime, making this one of the most common neurologic conditions. However, true epilepsy has a prevalence of far less than that. Only about half to 1% of people who have a seizure actually have epilepsy. But even still, about 50 million people worldwide do have epilepsy. So what then is a seizure, and what is epilepsy? What makes them different? A seizure is simply the abnormal overactivation and firing of a group of neurons in the brain. This group of neurons can be relatively small, and what we call focal, or can appear to happen everywhere at once, which we say is generalized. Usually, seizures will self-resolve within seconds to minutes, and this time of overexcitation is then followed by a period of decreased activity called the postictal period. During that time, the brain goes quiet, patients are sleepy, and for some, a part of the brain might be so reduced in activity that it looks like they have had a stroke in a phenomenon called Todd's paralysis. This postictal period usually lasts tens of minutes to hours, but can occasionally last even longer. Epilepsy, on the other hand, is defined clinically as two or more unprovoked seizures occurring more than 24 hours apart, or else having one seizure with a more than 60% chance of seizing again. This is essentially to say that on either imaging or on EEG, the patient appears to have a focus of some sort that could be invoked as causing the seizures. Now, I just used the term unprovoked seizure to define epilepsy, but to understand this, it might be best to first discuss what a provoked seizure is. Think back and remember what defines a neuron's ability to fire. At the most basic level, neurons are charged cells relying on an ion gradient largely made up of sodium and potassium ions with both passive channels as well as active channels keeping the cells polarized. Those active ion pumps require energy, the voltage gradient requires cell membrane integrity, and there are many different channels involved in making sure cells fire at the right time. Thinking about all of this, then it should be fairly expected that there would be many different things that can disturb this delicate balance and result in seizure. Plenty of these causes are just transient, system-wide disturbances and don't intrinsically alter the brain itself for the long term. In these cases, the seizure is said to be provoked, and it is expected that in the absence of this stimulus, the patient will not have another seizure. In talking about these systemic factors, we often say they lower the seizure threshold. So what can do this? Basic metabolic disturbances affect the gradient and pumps and importantly includes hyponatremia, both hypoglycemia and hyperglycemia, as well as other byproducts of metabolism such as acid-base disturbances, uremia, ammonemia, and other unmeasured compounds that build up due to the lack of sleep or systemic inflammation or infection. Fever itself is a notable cause, as your channels and pumps only function at certain temperatures. This becomes especially important in children who may have febrile seizures, but not go on to develop epilepsy. Trauma, hemorrhage, and stroke can acutely cause neuronal damage and seizures. Many drugs are implicated ranging from stimulants to antipsychotics to opiates to immunosuppressants and antibiotics like carbapenem, cefepime, cipro, and even penicillins. On the flip side... Remember, drugs like alcohol, benzos, and barbiturates all work by causing artificial neuronal inhibition, and when you remove that inhibitor, you can get rebound overexcitation and withdrawal seizures. The key point with all of this is that while any of these can cause seizures, in the absence of a cause for actual epilepsy, when this stimulus is removed, the patient should not have a seizure. So what then can cause actual epilepsy? 
The majority of etiologies here come down to structural issues. Essentially, anything that is structurally abnormal in the brain can result in irritation, potential rewiring, and then epilepsy. Think first about acquired changes. Things like hemorrhages, either parenchymal or extraaxial, old strokes, tumors, and abscesses. In addition to acquired, there are more congenital causes that can still act as a focus. These are things like cavernomas, mesial temporal sclerosis, and failures of neuronal migration, all of which can cause seizures. Still other epilepsies are inherited, and many are being found to be channelopathies that can result in malfunction of the ion channels that maintain the neuronal charge. Many of these reveal themselves early in life and have described syndromes, but that is beyond the scope of this talk. All right. So we've established that there are many different things that can cause seizures, and that seizure alone doesn't make epilepsy. But how do you even know that a person has had a seizure? What does a seizure look like? Most of us have a picture in our heads of what a generalized tonic-clonic seizure looks like, but let's break it down a little. As with most things in the brain, the presentation will depend on the location of the abnormality. Generalized seizures involve both hemispheres and result in the whole body rhythmic jerking, loss of consciousness, incontinence, and likely tongue bite and other accidental self-harm that you're most familiar with. As the name GTC suggests, there is usually a tonic phase with maintained muscle contraction as well as a clonic phase which has the rhythmic muscle contraction and relaxation. In both phases, the movement cannot be suppressed, and if you put your hand on the patient and try to stop the movement, you will not be able to stop it. But what if a seizure is not generalized, but is limited to a small region of the brain? This is what we call a focal seizure, and the way this appears will depend on the region that is affected. We'll begin by talking about the temporal lobe, which is a notable source of seizures. Think about the structures in the temporal lobe. On the medial aspect, you've got the hippocampus forming memories, amygdala involved in emotions, olfactory centers integrating scent, as well as some structures involved in autonomic control. Consequently, Seizures originating here result in auras of deja vu, burnt scents, and rising fear. On the lateral aspect of the temporal lobe, you'll find Wernicke's area, controlling speech, understanding, and seizures here interrupt its function and can result in aphasias. Now let's begin moving from front to back. Frontal lobe seizures can have a variety of presentations owing to the complex cortical functions that are based there. Key features are that consciousness is usually impaired, there may be automatisms, and if it spreads to involve the supplementary motor area, it will create typical motor behaviors like figure four or fencer posturing with the contralateral arm extended, ipsilateral arm flexed, and head turned contralaterally. Frontal lobe seizures also have a tendency to occur in sleep. Moving on towards the posterior aspect of the brain, the parietal lobe is largely involved in sensation and sensory integration and attention. Seizures here can cause abnormal sensations. The occipital lobe integrates visual data, and consequently seizures here can cause visual hallucinations, ranging from unformed lights to complex images to blindness. However, both the parietal and occipital lobes are less common sources of seizures. With all of this said, any of these seizures can continue to spread. As it affects other areas, especially as it marches across motor cortex, the presentation can evolve. We call this a Jacksonian march as the seizure moves across the cortical motor homunculus from the face to the hand to the arm to the leg. Eventually, when any of these seizures spreads enough, it will cross to the contralateral hemisphere by which point it has gone from a focal seizure to a generalized seizure. When this occurs, we say that the patient has focal seizures with secondary generalization. So now we've talked about what causes seizures and what they look like. But what else looks like a seizure? Essentially, what else could be on your differential? 
Certainly not all abnormal movements are seizures. Even not all rhythmic movements are seizures. Think about tremor. Importantly, there are a number of different things that can look very much like a seizure, but are not, and your history taking can be hugely important in defining this. Have you heard of convulsive syncope? If not, you should really go on YouTube and search for The Fainting Lark, which is a collection of videos by Lampert et al. taken of what happens to German medical students after a syncopal event. You'll see the myoclonus, eye movements, and even apparent posturing that can occur with syncope alone. So how do you clinically distinguish this from a seizure. First, you need to turn to the history and seek out a reason for the person to have syncopized, like a vagal stimulus or orthostatic cause. Then, find out what you can about the event. Tongue bites and incontinence are also possible with syncope, but the patient will usually have crumpled from loss of tone and syncope rather than have become rigid. And then after the event, how does the patient wake up? What do they remember and what does their family describe? It's normal to be a bit groggy after syncope, but within minutes the patient should be fully oriented and alert. What else? Asterixis is commonly thought of as the flapping hands of liver patients, but as a movement, this is actually a type of negative myoclonus that suggests an underlying metabolic derangement of which hyperammonemia is just one possible cause. And asterixis is not just limited to the hands. This involuntary, brief relaxation of a tensed muscle can happen anywhere in the body and can cause people to fall, drop their arms, or bob their head. Couple this with the fact that patients that are so metabolically deranged also frequently act strangely, and it can look very much like seizure activity. The key here is to identify that usually the patient can still follow commands and possibly produce speech despite their entire body being involved in these movements. Also, these are spasms of relaxation rather than positive muscle contraction, and usually there is no rhythmicity to it. Finally, there is the potential that the witnessed event looked very much like a seizure, may have a postictal period of sorts, but not be due to an abnormal neuron firing at all. In patients with these non-epileptic events, sometimes called NES or non-epileptic seizures, there is a conversion of sorts occurring as the patient experiences an emotional process, usually of stress or anxiety, that they then portray as seizure-like activity. The difficulty here is that there is a high comorbidity of real epilepsy in these patients with non-epileptic events, and in order to confirm that it is not due to cortical activity, the patient must have a seizure while connected to EEG. Because of this, these patients are often diagnosed with epilepsy and treated with anti-epileptics, and then it can take years to demonstrate this not to be the case. So we've brought up the electroencephalogram, or EEG, but let's talk for a minute now about what we can do for diagnostic tests in epilepsy. EEG does make up a core component and uses sensitive metal electrodes glued to the head to pick up electrical signals coming from the brain. However, as sensitive as the leads are, it still requires a significant amount of cells firing in order to detect anything through the dura, skull, and skin, which all dampen the signal. Consequently, it's not single cells firing that make it through, but actually square centimeters of cortex with thousands if not millions of neurons firing that is actually detected. A routine EEG done in the office captures 20 to 40 minutes, but longer EEG recordings can be had by sending the patient home with leads attached. Or, we can admit them for inpatient video EEG monitoring for days if needed, with the video allowing us to capture the actual appearance of the events. Additionally, many of these patients get MRIs to look for underlying structural abnormalities. Depending on what is found on MRI and EEG, another much more invasive way of doing EEG is to place depth electrodes into the cortex itself, as well as between the skull and dura, to increase the sensitivity and try to define the small epicenter of the seizure. 
seizure. So let's say we've determined that a patient likely has epilepsy because they've had two unprovoked seizures more than 24 hours apart, or that they've had one seizure and a more than 60% chance of having another, so they would benefit from an anti-epileptic to prevent seizures. There are a number of different medications we can use and they can be thought of by their spectrum of use as well as their pharmacologic effect. We'll go over some of the most common, but you can find lists of others online. First are the broad-spectrum AEDs, which include Keppra, Valproic Acid, Lamotrigine, and Topiramate, among others. Then, by mechanism, meds like phenytoin, lecosamide, and Lamotrigine, carbamazepine, and oxcarbazepine all act on sodium channels. Benzos act on GABA, Valproate acts on sodium and GABA, and then Keppra, which we don't even fully understand. All of these drugs have side effects as well, like mood changes with Keppra, liver enzyme elevation in Valproate, arrhythmias with phenytoin, and possibly Stevens-Johnson syndrome with lamotrigine. The decision of which AED to use is individualized per patient depending on the type of seizure and the side effect profile. About 70% of patients will be controlled after their first AED, but the likelihood of control drops significantly as more agents are required, with each additional agent only helping maybe 20% of patients. Other options include devices like vagal nerve stimulation, or else Neuropace, which is a device implanted in the cortex near a seizure focus that detects the start of a focal seizure and then sends a small shock to the brain to hopefully stop seizure propagation. Ultimately, if a patient has a defined focus and fails two medicines, they may be a candidate for surgical excision of a seizure focus. While invasive, surgery can actually be curative. For all patients with a seizure, because of the loss of control during a seizure, we warn them not to drive. And in New York, state law says they cannot drive for six months. We warn them to avoid swimming or bathing alone, and to avoid other situations where loss of control could be devastating. One special case to mention, because it will be on your exams, absence seizures are childhood generalized seizures characterized by loss of consciousness, often appearing as brief, seconds-long staring spells. It is associated with multiple genetic channel abnormalities, but despite this variety, usually has a characteristic 3 hertz spike and wave on EEG. It is usually effectively treated with ethosuximide, and many patients do not need continued treatment into adulthood. All right, now let's talk briefly about seizures that don't stop. When a generalized seizure lasts longer than five minutes, or if a patient has two separate seizures without recovering consciousness and returning to baseline, we say they are in status epilepticus. Status is dangerous because one, if you remember the fire together, wire together concept of synapse formation, the brain will develop new connections as well as other changes that make it harder to stop a seizure the longer it goes on. Two, Bad activity in the brain and with convulsions can lead to autonomic instability, causing cardiac and respiratory abnormalities as well as rhabdomyolysis. Finally, three, that seizure activity can be directly toxic to the brain through excitotoxicity, where cells that fire too much actually get injured and die. So what do you do when a GTC isn't stopping? Step one is always ABCs and to stabilize and even intubate the patient if needed. At the same time, benzos like Ativan given IM or IV can be tried a few times but also runs the risk of over-sedating the patient and requiring intubation. Then, because the Ativan will only last a short period, an AED like phosphenitoin, valproate, or Keppra is also loaded to prevent seizure recurrence. Simultaneously, you should be thinking about whether there could be a provoking cause for the seizure and if there is anything to be done to remove that cause. If the seizure doesn't stop, there are pathways of escalation of treatment, but that is beyond the context of this talk.
Treating a focal seizure that doesn't stop, called epilepsy partialis continua, or focal status, is a different story, and benzos should be used, but judiciously, as you should try to avoid the need for intubation in favor of loading other AEDs. In summary, a seizure is a relatively common abnormal overexcitation of brain tissue usually because of something wrong systemically or with the brain itself. If it happens unprovoked twice, or if there is a known structural cause, the person can be said to have epilepsy. Evaluation is largely clinical to exclude provoking causes and seizure mimics, but further eval includes EEG and imaging. Treatment with AEDs is tailored to the individual, but ultimately a patient may require surgical removal of a seizure focus if present, and if medical treatments fail. The goal of treatment is to reduce total number of seizures and to prevent status epilepticus. Status is a potentially life-threatening state of non-stop seizure lasting more than five minutes, which should be treated promptly with benzos like Ativan, loading an AED, and reversal of any underlying cause. And that's it for our brief tour through epilepsy. I'm Ben Brush. Thanks for listening.